HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The Heritage End of Year Fund Drive is officially on. Become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a new podcast about building food brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces for grocery stores last year, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. So in my effort to get myself educated, I started meeting other founders and everyone I know and respect who could advise me, from production and distribution gurus to legal, PR, and social media mavens. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Lauren Jupiter, managing partner of Excel Foods, an early stage venture capital firm that invests in consumer products. Lauren and her partner, Jordan, co-founded the fund in 2014 and now have over 35 companies in their portfolio. Lauren oversees deal origination, supervises financial strategy for the portfolio, and manages the, manages the daily financial operations and administration of the fund. I stumbled because I don't know what half of those <laughs> things actually are, but we're going to get into that. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so you have what I would call a very hardcore business background. You have an MBA from Wharton. You did investment banking at UBS. Were you always like, were you the kid in fifth grade who like picked the stock and won that contest that I dreaded? So absolutely not. Okay, uh, good. So I, I grew up with a little finance in my home. My mom actually worked in finance. Cool. So it was always around me. I would say I understood the concept of the stock market at a young age. Uh, I like just, that it was your mom. It was my mom. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to be honest, I I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. And in my spare time, be a dancer for the <laughs> Nick City dancers. <laughs> and it made a lot of sense because both totally. of those could happen in MSG at the same time. Oh, right. You would just like leave. You'd like yes. hang up your coat and then run downstairs and put on your like socks. Yeah, no, your... I'd be on the floor the whole time. Right. And I would just kind of go back and forth between tending to oh, the right. team and <laughs> doing these amazing hip hop dances that in the 90s were, I think, as cool as it could be. So. I think that's actually, I don't, I wonder if anyone's ever done both jobs. I think you, that's not a bad plan. I, yeah. I, I think it was, it was very well thought yeah, out. Yeah, well, you were thinking about commute. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and and, and every, everyone needs a little side hustle. So totally. I mean, and you know, I mean, if you're them, you would want your doctor to, to also to be able to dance in like right? a leotard yeah, and then have totally. her come over. So yeah. how did you plan on executing that plan? Did you go to school? Did you think you were going to pre-med? Like by well, the time you got to college, were you no, not? But, yeah. But so through high school, that was my plan. I was, you know, that cool kid who did the like AP bio summer <laughs> program. Yes. Um, yeah. And you know, I met my match. My husband did chemistry camp. So I was bio camp. He was chemistry oh, camp. That's very so sweet. It all works out in mm -hmm. the end. But no, I, I definitely didn't think, um, you know, it, until I got to college, I didn't think that I'd be going into finance. And actually I got to college. I took the freshman economics class that, mm -hmm. everyone, that I failed, that everyone hates. I failed literally F yeah. and at yeah. college. And yeah. I 
loved it. I mean, <laughs> everything about it I thought was amazing. Um, just the whole idea of understanding supply and demand and how it all so cool. just structurally made so much sense to me. So I was the nerdy one who, you know, no, enjoyed but it. I, I often look back to, so we didn't go to the same college, but I did. I was in like an econ 101 that I thought I would just love. And there were 300 people in the class. And it was really the first time I'd ever, I went to an all girls school and I didn't believe that there was sexism. I just didn't, I'd never been exposed to it. And my teacher just, you know, basically dismissed me very early on and said something along the lines of, you know, sweetheart, you know, this isn't really for you. And I went to the arcade for the rest of the semester and failed the class. So I'm glad that you had a different experience. I did have a different experience, but I'll say, you know, Jordan and I always say when we have those sorts of experiences in our professional world, we use it as our like fuel to the fire. Yes. I used Um, it as my fuel to learn how to get really good at off-road. I like that. was the only video game that you didn't have to keep putting a quarter in when you won. You just kept winning and like you got to play again. It was it was a really good use of my parents' education yes. fund. Okay, so you got into it and then you decided that that was what you wanted to do and then you started working toward that career. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, when I was in college, investment banking was sort of seen as this training ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did, you know, what was supposed to be that two-year analyst program. Yep. Um, but I extended it and did the five-year plan, uh-huh. <laughs> which looking back, you know, I, I still can't believe I did, but it was such a great experience. Right. Um, and I spent a couple years in New York, and then I moved to London with the firm I was with. And so I had the opportunity to live abroad. So cool. And that was before business school. It was before business right. school, yeah. And I was covering consumer products companies. So I really was working with food and beverage companies and was more large cap consumer companies and sort of, you know, larger private equity firms investing in the space. Um, but that was kind of my first foray into the food and beverage space. And and so when you say covering, I mean, just break it down a little yeah. bit because people are mostly food people yes. who listen to this. So you were helping structure deals for people buying companies or? Yeah, so we were helping them with everything from their strategy and M&A, so thinking about where were the holes in their business, where they should be thinking about acquiring Buying, other businesses, right. and then ultimately helping them through the transaction process. Um, on the flip side, thinking about selling off pieces of their business. Right. Um, we worked with uh, with companies that were um, that were looking to IPO to go public. Mm-hmm. We worked with private equity firms that needed to get debt financing to acquire right. businesses in the space. So. Really, all aspects of you know mergers and acquisitions, right. debt, equity, all and centered around companies that were, you know, these kind of often the behemoths right. in, in this space. But you also got a sense of the consumer branded piece of things, right? Because you could be doing that for other, you know, you could be doing that for industry or like oil tankers or yes. something, right? And it, this was did that did that trigger like a fun thing for you? Yeah. So when I went into investment banking, I went, I, I said I wanted to be in this industry because I was always interested in brands and the mm-hmm. way that, uh, that people connect with the brands around them mm-hmm. and the loyalty that we develop. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was about, you know, this is the laundry detergent that I use and yeah. I'll never switch because yeah. I have such a loyalty to it. And how do companies create that? How do yeah. they use that to their advantage? Um, and, you know, as I was learning finance on the job, I didn't want to also have to learn something that was to me very complicated to understand. I didn't want to be covering companies that made like semiconductors right. and I didn't understand at all. Right. So to me, the idea that, you know, I remember in my summer internship in investment banking, we were working with a, a candy company looking at uh, potentially buying a gum company uh-huh. and the fact that I could then walk into CVS yeah. and see that gum on the shelf yeah. and pick it up, look at the ingredients and understand what they were talking about right. in the boardroom about yeah. why this was interesting, I thought was just the coolest that thing. That is world. the coolest thing. I mean, I I'm so bummed that I got to be my age without having a really 
firm understanding of the financial piece of it because now I'm learning it and I'm enjoying learning it. I'm enjoying learning about margins. I'm enjoying learning about. I, I you think know. you're the only person that's ever said that. No, it's. Really, I mean, listen. <laughs> if you like, right now we're doing that thing. You, I don't know, like a flying brick, or you know, it's some kind of uh, chart where a I'm waterfall. Like, yes. So okay. I'm showing my margins now, and uh-huh. then like this is what happens in the next purchase order with pouches, and then yeah. this is what happened, and then the you just when you see the margin, and you know that you're just getting every, you know, little more point to use to actually marketing and funding the business it's it's really fun but I wish that I had learned more of that you know earlier on and so what were your biggest takeaways from that experience I guess before business school so one of the things that I had the opportunity to do when I was working in banking when I was in London um, I spent six months working on site for a a portfolio company of one of our private equity clients it was a large frozen food company Mm -hmm. um in, in Europe. And I went in, spent six months helping them build out their, uh, their financial model, their strategic plan, really got to immerse myself with, um, their finance team, but also their, each of their sort of country and category heads and Mm -hmm. really understand how they were thinking about the business and then consolidate that into a sort of ground up model for the overall business. Very cool. It was, it was, one of the it was a pretty unique experience mm-hmm. and something I'm really happy that I got to do. Yep. Um, and you know, it really opened my eyes to see all the resources that these big companies have. Yep. Uh, and yet at the same time, how hard it is to sort of, you know, re-steer a huge, yeah. huge ship. Yep. Uh, and how hard it is to move quickly and jump on opportunities and just the timeline for innovation to go from an idea right. to testing it to actually hitting the shelf. Um, and it really dawned on me that what I wanted to do was work with small growing companies that could move quickly right. and try to bring some of those resources, some of that mindset to entrepreneurs who could take advantage of them and, you know, zig and zag as they needed to, to not just grow quickly, but also hopefully change a little bit of the landscape in the food and beverage industry. That's very cool. Sometimes, I don't know if you have this experience, but sometimes when I see sort of new products from those behemoths and I, I picture a board table of like 24 people in suits being like, yeah, this is a good idea. And just being like, someone who how could they let this out into the world that is the ugliest font or like that's the most ridiculous statement like it you wonder sometimes like why they're even trying to do innovation themselves like they should just be you know I don't know I guess and then the flip side is is that a lot of times when the bigger companies do acquire it almost changes that ability to pivot and be you know and be smart and be innovative somehow, you know, right from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, I think when when you're at one of these large companies, Mm -hmm. everything needs to, quote-unquote, move the needle. That's always the term that's used, but doesn't move the needle. And so any change, any innovation has to be big enough, fast enough Mm -hmm. for it to show up for their shareholders and be able to say, you know, that expense went into X percent top-line growth or Y percent um, earnings growth. And... You know, I think with that, it means that there's a lot of fear around taking risks because mm-hmm. you're accountable to the public equity right. markets for right. everything that you're doing. Uh, and so you don't have the luxury of making a mistake the way that, honestly, an entrepreneur right. has that luxury. Totally. So you knew going into business school that you wanted to work for, for smaller companies. Yep consumer brands and bring all of that great financial juju that you had to those guys. Yes. And so were you able to sort of focus in on that for the MBA? Yeah. So I, when I was in business school, I majored in finance and strategic management. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I spent my summer interning, interning, sorry, at Unilever. Right. um, And had the opportunity to see sort of brand management live and right. see what it's like to be in a big organization, not necessarily just focused on finance, but right. focus a little bit more on managing a P&L within one of those organizations, right. managing, you know, thinking about everything from um, marketing initiatives to sales right. and kind of watch that process. Did you get to actually, did, were you assigned like a few little brands or not little, so but I a worked, few brands? Yeah, so I worked on 
a brand. I worked on a very big brand, which was one that, interestingly, I, I wrote about this brand in my um, business school applications. It was Dove Soap. Oh, yeah. Which... I I was I always admired what they, they did. They had and a kind very of, strong yes. identity. Yes, very. and the conversation about real women. Yep. Um, and so I thought it was just almost sort of fate that I got yeah. to work on this brand. <laughs> yes. Um, and then they looked at me and said, okay, well, we know that you can analyze numbers. We know that you can sort of, if we gave you a project to analyze sales data, you could do that because mm-hmm. you're from a you know sort of numbers and finance background. So they gave me something that for me was very much out of my wheelhouse, and it was to help develop a mobile marketing strategy ah. for Dove before that exist. I mean, it's you would have thought this was like thirty years ago. It wasn't that long no, ago, but, but it I wasn't mean, something no. that you know was as much part of every for sure. brand as it is now. Um, and so for me, that was very outside of you know my wheelhouse. But to be able to be in a position where I was leveraging sort of the resources of this organization and right. understand how, you know, PR works with the insights yeah. team with the so to sort of see that in action, I think was a really interesting Yeah, I mean your experience is kind of perfect because it's almost like this three sixty experience. You know, I mean I'd want you helping me on my brand. That's <laughs> all I can say. Um and then how did you and Jordan meet and then how did Excel happen? Yeah. So it's funny, Jordan and I were introduced by my cousin, who mm-hmm. happened to be a former colleague of Jordan's. It was a partner at the law firm that Jordan practiced at. Mm-hmm. Um, and she introduced us because, you know, we were, she, she knew that we both wanted to invest in this food space. She knew that right. I, I was looking for opportunities to invest in early growing companies. And Jordan had this idea to take a model that was prevalent in the tech space of mm-hmm. accelerators and apply it to food and beverage. Right. Um, and Randy, my cousin, said, you know, there aren't, that many sort of like-minded women I meet yeah. who, who you know, sort of are down this path. So she introduced us and very quickly we realized that we had sort of lived these parallel lives. Yeah, perfectly yeah. suited. We both, yeah. we grew up like 10 blocks from each other in New York City. Oh, wow. Our husbands went to college together. But you never had met. We had never met. So we had all these friends in common. We joked that Friday night they'd go to dinner with a couple and we'd go to dinner with them Saturday. <laughs> right. And yet we'd never been introduced. That's very funny. So when we met, it all moved very quickly. Um, and I think we were able to develop a trust yeah. much more quickly than if we had been complete strangers. Um, and you have really good sort of different skill sets. Yes, I we're mean, very much, you know, it's probably an overused term, but we're very much like the yin and the yang. We're, yeah. We are very complimentary. I know. I mean, we could have a whole separate discussion on how I had, I had two co-founders on to talk about how they don't hate each other essentially. (laughs) And so we could have a whole other one on that because you actually are an entrepreneur who started your own thing with a co-founder, but you're not here to talk about that. Because we, and need we to don't get hate each other. So I know. Well, that's, <laughs> that's pretty. Great. You don't seem like you hate no. each other, which is great. Um, okay. So the, so the idea really always was young companies, yes. emerging brands, consumer products. So, yes. And it, then it was always, you know, food and beverage, packaged goods. Right. And at the time, I think the space is so different now. At yeah. the time, it was. A lot of angel investors and then a pretty big gap to sort of growth stage investment. I think it still is a little bit. I mean, from my understanding of it, at least I feel like it's, there's more seed, I guess, Mm -hmm. now. Um, But even just, you know, I don't want a bunch of $10,000 checks. Yes, yeah. But I don't necessarily, I'm not ready for, you know, a big mama check either. So I feel like, I I do feel like there is a little bit of a gap in between those two things. I think the gap is still there, but it's a lot smaller than it was. Right. So I think, you know, there's maybe one or two funds back then that would write a $10 million check. Most right. of them wanted to write like a 20 or 30 right. or $40 million right. check at a minimum. Um, and now I think that's changed. I think a yeah. lot of the funds that are bigger and maybe would historically be writing these bigger checks are coming down a little bit because there's so much activity in the market right. and you kind of need to mark your territory a yeah, little bit earlier Yeah, sure. Now. I mean, I feel like, you know, I know people that were sort of mandated 
to write those big checks for the private equity firms that they worked for. And they had a hard time sourcing deals because the earlier investors who wrote the smaller checks got the next round. Yes. Basically. Yeah. yeah and it's a challenge either, you know, either you're missing opportunities or if you need to write a check that big and you're writing it in a small company, that means that you're it's probably big, paying a valuation that just doesn't make sense right. in the context of the business to absorb a check that big. Right. Exactly. Okay. So you, you founded this thing. Yes. And you, I mean, presumably, you know, all of us change a little bit in four or five years, but the mission was basically. Yeah. So, so we started the company around like the dining room table, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, you know, so many entrepreneurs, particularly, yep. I guess, in the food space. Do. Yep. Um, and it started as what was a accelerator. And we had a small accelerator sort of fund, this $4 million fund. Mm-hmm. And when we started, we were investing in companies doing less than $500,000 of revenue. Right. We were writing checks that ranged from, you know, 50000 to, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars max. Right. But really, it was more like fifty to $200,000. Right. Um, and, that, and that was in January of 2014 that we launched. Uh, and then we quickly saw that companies doing a million and under had similar needs and mm-hmm. companies doing over a million dollars had sim- similar needs in terms of working with investors that were value add that could help them right. build infrastructure and think about, you know, more than just trying to drive revenue, 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 right. but really building what was beneath that and right. bringing in partnerships and um, relationships with retailers and distributors and everything that we were trying to build around mm-hmm. Excel Foods. Um and so we then uh, fast forward, had our second fund, um, and we closed on what was a thirty-five million dollar fund. We had our final close um, on on our second fund in uh, in early in twenty seventeen. And you know, at that time, our mandate was you know checks from two hundred and fifty thousand dollars up to a maximum of around two million in any company. Wow. Um, and now you know we're continuing to grow. We've got. Um, over 80 million under management. So cool. And we're cutting checks now from 500,000 up to concentration of 5 million in any right. given company. And do you still write the small ones or it's just not? So worth we won't the time write anymore. like a $50,000 right. check anymore. Um, but with that said, you know, we invest in companies at a, a bigger range of stages. So right. that's going to be my next question. Like, okay. what is the sweet spot for you guys to invest in? Like, where, what's your like, yeah. that's our perfect spot. Um, but also where is a company at in its development for you to be their sweet spot? So we will invest in companies from true startup to 10 plus million of revenue and, you know, well beyond 10 million in certain scenarios with that in mind, our sweet spot right now, I would say is probably in the three to $10 million range. That doesn't mean we won't do smaller. Doesn't mean we won't do bigger, you know, the smaller companies, it looks a little different now. Often those are companies where the founder had a previous business right. that was successful or, um, you know, there's just something so unique about right. the product that um, that we don't want to be boxed out right, the same right, way right. that, you know, the later right. funds so are throw like a, a different level. For later, yeah. um, but, you know, I think it's that three to 10 million range that's really where we can be most impactful. And I think when we think about what a, where a company should be to take advantage of, I guess, working with us, mm-hmm. it really, you know, I, I think it depends because there's so much that we can do with them. I think the biggest thing is companies need to want to work together in, in whatever way that means. Right. So, you know, we try to bring a lot to the table and I think that we do that. And that's why the three to $10 million brands tend to have the most success. Yeah. Cause taking, they're able to take yeah, it in. They can yeah. move really quickly on the distributor relationships, the retailer relationships. They, you know, th- they're a little bit of a step ahead. Right. That being said, the early guys where we started, you know, we're digging in with them on like building their financial model and thinking about financial reporting, thinking about, um, yeah, their first co-packer contract, all right. of those things, the real foundation. Um, and that's one of our biggest areas of focus is saying, do you have that infrastructure in place? So there's companies that need to build infrastructure. Right. There's companies that need to optimize infrastructure. And mm-hmm. then there's companies that really are focused on driving top line. And, you know, there's always tweaks to infrastructure, but right. that's a little bit more built. And so in those different 
stages, they can kind of leverage right. our resources and our support in different capacities. Very cool. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about my business. <laughs> All <laughs> no, right. Not really, but kind of. <laughs> 2019 is Heritage Radio Network's 10th birthday, and we've got a lot to celebrate. We need your support to bring you another year of the best in food radio. Help HRN ring in its second decade by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. Hi, it's Allie Kane. You're listening to In the Sauce, and I'm here with Lauren Jupiter from Excel Foods. Um, and I'd like to now sort of start talking about raising money. Um, if you were a new founder, let's say, uh, how would you think about going out and finding money? How would you grow? When would you start to look for outside money? And what would you look for in an investor? Yeah, so... You know, I think it's always important to first take stock of, you know, the people around you and understand that, you know, you want to get as far as you sort of can yeah. without bringing in too much outside, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Um, and so with that in mind, I think the first stop, as the first stop was for us, is friends and family. And it's yep. the people who invest in you because they believe in you. You know, they're going to be the most forgiving in a sense because they're yes of course they're investing because they think you have a great idea but at right. the end of the day they know you right um, and I think for us as investors there's also something reassuring about that to know that the people who know someone best yeah took that chance on them that's a good point that's actually a really good point because I was always sort of trying to avoid asking friends and family yeah just because I feel like it gets messy and but to hear from an investor that they like looking at that to some extent because it shows that the people who know you trust you that's a that's a neat point to hear and i think you know there's the side of it too i always think about it as when you're going to friends and family for money you want to you're going to them because you feel like you can create an opportunity for them mm -hmm. but with that in mind you know you have to be realistic you you don't want your best friend putting an amount of money in your business where if you know, God forbid something happened, right. it's going to change their life for the worse. Yeah, for sure. So it's always about, you know, protecting the downside and really hoping that you're going to change someone's life for the better. Right. Uh, but knowing that, you know, you're being thoughtful and cautious there and having that yeah. direct conversation with no, someone. That's a good point. And then, um, so, w I mean, obviously there's no, like, you hit a million no. in sales <laughs> and then you go out and find money, but yeah. do you have a general threshold do you think if you let's say you founded the new dove and it was you know doing 450,000 in sales yeah so would you wait would you go would you know so I think it's different for every founder and it's different for every company um, and I think you know you start with friends and family there's a point where then that resource is exhausted right and then you know there's also a point in your business where things are moving more quickly and capital isn't enough, right. you need a strategic partner. Well, also, I mean, part of the thing about friends and family, at least my perception of it, is that they are not necessarily bringing more than money. Exactly. Right. They're bringing like, I think you should do blah, blah, blah. And I'd really like to see it in this size. Right. And that's all very well and good, but it's not that helpful. It's not that helpful. It's a lot of noise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think there's a point where 
A, you need more capital than you can get from friends and family. And B, mm-hmm. you need someone who's going to say to you, okay, great that you got into your local, you know, mm-hmm. your local sort of retailers. But now let's talk about a strategy right. to go more deeply into this geography or to go more deeply into this channel. Let's right. talk about building a team. Let's talk right. about, you know, optimizing your supply chain differently. And so those are the investors that you're looking for. And, right. and we always say, Cash is a commodity. You can get cash theoretically anywhere, although, yep. you know, easier said than done. Yeah. But. I mean, banks aren't exactly that pumped yes. to give you yes, As you're burning through cash. Exactly. And you, have, you know, negative and, net income. Yeah. They're and they're like, are you buying any machinery? And I'm like, I, <laughs> no. that's not really what this is for. It's not for machinery, right. but then it makes it harder. You know, I mean, I think that's part of the, you know, there's this there, I think there's a little bit of a zeitgeist where founders are, we've kind of, I don't know, the idea of building a profitable business seems to have sort of shifted to building a very strong top line business. And, and I think that's probably going to shift back at some point because it probably has to at some point, but it seems, um, it seems like the money's been a little cheap for the last several years. And so, what seems to be happening a lot is companies are taking in a lot of money. They're having a lot of sales, but they're also spending a ton. And then there's a new round and a new round and a new round almost every year. And they're diluting and diluting and diluting. And I, I would like to try to avoid that, you know, if possible. So can you tell me how to avoid that? So first and foremost, I think you're right. I don't think that it's going to be able to continue forever that, you know, companies can just burn through cash. And I think one of the things that we found that we find challenging Mm -hmm. is founders that have the perception of, oh, well, it's not my money, so I can spend it. It's my investor's money. Who cares? But it is your money. That's your equity. Yeah. And it is expensive money because it's your ownership of the business. So while it may be available, at the end of the day, it's Right. It's money that, you know, that you're losing. But it's kind of like the, you know, if you chop down this tree now, you can grow this now, but, you know, three generations from now, they won't have any shade. You know, I mean, I think yeah, of it that way. Definitely. I think humans in general aren't very good at making long-term decisions. They're much better at sort of what are my needs right now? What am I, you know, how do I make this work right now? And we sign things quickly, especially things that feel not real, like equity, but... Hold on to it is your point. Yeah. And I think hold on to it, but bring in the right partners around you is what I would say. And I think, you know, on the flip side, there are founders who are so overly focused on dilution and valuation that they actually disadvantage themselves. Mm -hmm. So either, yeah, they're too afraid to raise capital or too afraid to raise strategic capital from, you know, the right partners or when they start and this quite frankly, can be one of the dangers of friends and family money. Mm-hmm. When they start, they go at, at a valuation that's so high that they can't possibly live up to it in the next round. And so right. they're put in a position where, you know, when more, um, I would say, more experienced right. capital comes to the table, they have to do a down round. And that's really challenging. So let's talk a little bit about that because those, I now know what that whole sentence means, <laughs> which I'm very pleased by. But, you know, I think of it a little bit like they, there's this thing in real estate where like you think your house is worth, you know, a gajillion dollars. Right. It's only worth what someone actually is willing to pay for it. Exactly. And there's always a little bit of an adjustment. But I put all this work into my bathroom tile and they don't understand that. And, you know, they don't like my refrigerator. So we, I think as founders, these are our babies. We have put, you know, 90 hours. I don't even know how many hours there are in the week, but pretty much all of them into building these things. We're of course going to think that they're more valuable than they are. And you and I had a conversation because, you know, I had, I had never, I don't know. It was an interesting way to think about it, but you actually don't want to have two big of a valuation until you can really support it because the next time there's a round of investment, it might not live up to the previous round. And so that's what you mean by a down round. Yes. So if you have so, friends and family and you say, my company's worth $10 million, but an investor comes in in the next round and says, actually, it's worth six, right. they get what? 
what happens to their money. So <laughs> the people who are already in mm-hmm. are more diluted. Diluted, right. So let's say, and here, you know, realistically, people are paying a, do- a value for each share or each, you know, right. each unit or share of a company that they're right. investing in. And so at the end of the day, if someone comes in and they pay $10 a share, but the next people coming in are only paying $6 a share. Right. Then, you know, they've overpaid for that. Right. And that is challenging. That means those people may not want to come back in. It also, quite frankly, may spook the subsequent investors from coming in because they feel like you don't necessarily have a realistic understanding of right. what your company's worth. It may not right. be a positive relationship from day one. Right. Interesting. And so, I mean, in my case, again, I can really only talk about my case, but you know, if you, if you did a valuation purely based on sales, it would not be, you know, crazy, but I feel like the valuation for a company like mine is on sales to some extent in a year, but also the brand equity, you know, what we've built, the, the potential based on sort of like the commitments we have from grocers that are interested, et cetera. So do you have any, is there, I know again, it's not a perfect science, but do you have sort of a litmus of, because companies have valuations before they even have a sale. Yep. And I don't understand that exactly. Um, so can you kind of map out how do you come about evaluation for a company or like how would you how would you think about it so we think about it in a few ways we think about it you know certainly we think about a multiple of revenue and we think about a multiple of revenue in terms of what they've achieved already so their revenue over the last 12 months Mm -hmm. when we look at revenue we also you know there's gross revenue gross revenue and net revenue so gross revenue is you know sort of theoretically the price that you're charging to your distributors Mm -hmm. And then net revenue is what they're actually paying after all those discounts. Um, And that's what we look at. Because if you just put on paper that your product is $10 a unit, but no one ever pays more than $5 a unit, it doesn't matter that you theoretically have $10 a unit on paper. So in our case, we, you know, I guess I won't use the actual numbers, but let's say we are $10 a unit, Uh which we're not. (laughs) <laughs> to the distributor because that would be more than what we're on the shelf at, but I'm just getting theoretical. Um, but, you know, four months out of the year, we're on, you know, a, a, a promotion with the distributor. You look at that. Yeah. So we look at sort of over the course of the year, what are the sales when we subtract out all Got of it. those discounts in that promotional period? Okay. So you look at the multiple of the revenue and you look at the net, not the gross. Yes. And what else do you look at? We look at, you know, w- with a really early stage company, mm-hmm. you of course have to look at what's on the horizon. Right. Um, and as you said, you're thinking about sort of the sales in the year to come, but for us, you know, it can't just be about, oh, I think I'm yeah, going to get like into us, right? <laughs> X retailer in six months. Yeah. You know, if you have been in, um, I don't know, you, you've been in whatever retailer. I've, right. So let's say we've been in, we are in a region of Whole Foods. Okay. So you've been in Whole Foods yes. for the last quarter of this year. Yes. And so that's a very real, um, you know, that's very real result that we could see for the last three months. Right. We can think about that a little bit going forward in some ways, like what would that have looked at, looked like on a full year basis? Right. You know, and when you're really early, we may have to do that because so much is happening all the time. Yeah. Um, but where it gets more tricky is when entrepreneurs come to us and say, no, but by the end of the year, I think I'm going to be in 10,000 doors. Right. So that means my run rate's going right. to be, you know, X million dollars a month. And, right. You know, that's it's not funny because I, I was showing someone my bottom up model and they, um, said to me that it was very conservative. They also said to me that women tend to be very conservative on their models versus men. Have you had that experience? You know, I haven't looked at it from, you know, on a gender basis like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is in keeping with um, just sort of broader things that right. I've seen studied in, you yeah. know, analyses of hedge fund performance of right. women versus men and things right. like that. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't put anyone in there that I didn't think I had like a firm commitment from, I think I put one sort of like, this would be cool, but (laughs) you know, I didn't put in any sort of like assuming we'll get these, you know, sort of 
local stores or these smaller, you know, anyway, that's a little in the weeds. What about brand? What about, you know, just a community that, you know, you've built or, you know, some brand flow? Yeah. So look, I think that brand can be important, but early on, it's still so early that it's hard to say that you've built true brand loyalty. Right. And so there may be unique scenarios where the sort of, um, I would say, growth of your brand mm-hmm. and that brand equity has surpassed the growth of your revenue. Right. But I don't think that that's that common. Right. Um, because if you're, if the brand equity had so outpaced the growth of the sales, that would be reflected right. in all of these retailer authorizations that are right. hopefully happening very quickly. Right. Got it. Um, the other things we do look at are, you know, gross margin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how goes back to margin always goes back to margin. Yep. Um, and then at the end of the day, we do look at how much cash you're burning. Mm-hmm. So how much is it costing you to keep this business running? How far will the cash get you? Yep. Um, and you like know, a monthly burn rate or we just look at, right. we look at, yeah, we do typically look at the monthly burn right. rate. Um, I know that too. Yeah. And we want to make sure that, you know, for every dollar of revenue, you're not basically buying every dollar right. of revenue that right. you're that I mean, you're to be fair, you know, a lo- I, most of us are going to be for the first chunk of time, right? I mean, there's just launching a new product. We I've spent pretty much every episode talking about it. Number one, I think, you know, people don't realize that they should launch a product that can be profitable. <laughs> like, At some point, yes. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I mean, there are some products, you know, you, that you can't... Oh, they'd be profitable at $15 a product, right? But that can't go on the shelf next to things that are $5, whatever. So I think that's the first thing that people don't think about, which is maybe sort of surprising to someone with your background, but it is very much a real food person's thing. I want to create this amazing thing. It should be accessible to everyone. There you go. You know, hopefully that'll work out. And even if it, look, even if it can't be profitable, under sort of your independent ownership right. of it. Ultimately, it if your goal be. is to right. sell your company to either, you know, a larger food company mm-hmm. or to a financial buyer, right. you need to be able to demonstrate that under that ownership, Hence the company the can be profitable. waterfall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then um, I think the other thing is going back to sort of like, are you buying every dollar of sales? Like, I don't think people realize at all how much it actually costs to get on the shelves. Getting approved by the buyer is like the, you know, you don't ring the bell yet, right? I mean, and it takes a lot of, you know, promotions and demos and, and I mean, all sorts of like how we'll support the brand. And it's really expensive aside from just an Instagram, you know, influencer saying like, yay, this is great. Go to your local, whatever. There's a lot of money to, to spend on just having people know that you exist. There's so many products out there. So it's expensive and it's also, you know, making sure that your product is doing what it needs to be doing on shelf and in each store you're in is one of the most critical aspects of any business in the space. I think we see entrepreneurs so often focused on doors, 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 Mm -hmm. and how do I get more doors? And at the end of the day, yes, you know, we want to be able to see that retailers want to bring the product onto their shelves. But we, what we want to see even more than that is that, yeah, the doors that you're in, it's moving that consumers want to buy the product. There's nothing to me more depressing than the idea of opening a door and having it not work and having absolutely like not have it there. I mean, that's just so sad. Um, But that's where the work really begins. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, because as I'm building this, I definitely have operations and I definitely have sales, but I'm very, very focused on the merchandising like super focused because people don't know that they can find sauce in the refrigerator. So I feel like it's just, it's a, it might not be, it depends obviously on the product that you're building, but for mine, especially I need to make sure that there's a relationship at store level with every buyer that I possibly can. And that people are seeing it and it's replenished as often as it can, because it can get lost because they're not used to this product. Absolutely. And I think having that, 
in-store sort of consumer education is really important. So what are some of the, you know, let's say you invest in a company tomorrow. What would be sort of your first steps of helping them? Like what would be the first things you would look at and some of the biggest problems that you see and sort of some of the patterns that you see that we make mistakes as founders? So for us, it actually starts well before we close on an investment. Right. So we are, um, I would say, more than thorough in our diligence. <laughs> I think if you were to ask one of our portfolio companies, you know, they, right. they would definitely say that we're yes. probably one of the more thorough teams out there. And part of that for us is, you know, there's certainly the element of wanting to understand the business and know, you know, all of the potential sort of, you know, challenges before we go in. But part of that too is helping us set the roadmap of what we hope to accomplish with a company. And mm-hmm. We kind of set it out as, you know, these are the things that need to happen, you know, before we invest so we can be comfortable. Got it. These are the things that need to happen, you know, sort of very quickly during or, you know, quickly thereafter the investment. And then these are some of the longer term things that we want to work on with the company. Right. Um, and so, you know, we've we've sort of thought through that roadmap well before day one. Right. And so for us, it's, you know, everything from, you know, optimizing financial reporting, making sure that bottoms up plan is there and can you, tweaking can it. you define bottom up? Yeah. Because I, I would thoroughly mess up a, like a clean <laughs> definition. I get it, but I can't say what I don't yeah. get it enough. So when we think about a bottoms up sales plan, we think about looking at doors and really thinking about, you know, these are the doors that I want to go after. It's this retailer with this many doors. Mm-hmm. And then, saying, okay, and I think I'm going to move this many units, right? you know, per week, per skew in that set of doors. Right. And so instead of just throwing a I'm know, 150% sell, right. growth rate on right. top of last year's sales or whatever, right. maybe it's a 500% growth rate or a 30% growth rate, whatever it is, right? it really is starting with, these are the doors, this is how many units I can sell. Right. And having that logic behind the growth plan. Right. Yes. So like in our case, we're selling an average of, it's now 20 units per SKU per week at Whole Foods. And we know that that's probably pretty maxed out. Like we're probably not going to do much more than that in other Whole Foods. So our, just to give an example to the people listening, our model for the other regions that we're going into next year in Whole Foods, we took that number and we basically did 25% of that and built a monthly sales plan based on 25% of the sales that we're doing in the New York City Whole Foods. And that's 17 stores or whatever it is. Yeah. And what we tend to see is that Whole Foods will have the strongest velocities often then natural more broadly and then conventional mm-hmm. will be, you know, some portion of right. what, you know, you're selling in natural more broadly. Right. Um, and so thinking through that and not just throwing, you know, 20 right. units on right. some random sort of conventional <laughs> grocery store. Right. They're never going to do that. No. So you help them with a sales model. Do you help them sort of rethink about their cost of goods and all of their different contracts with their different suppliers. And yeah, so we will help them think through all of the expenses, whether it's cost of goods mm-hmm. or, you know, team expense, mm-hmm. marketing expense, sales expense, all of it. And, you know, uh, hopefully get to a place where we say this, you know, in the context of the category or in the dynamics in that category, this is how we should be thinking about growth relative to cash burn. Right. Um, and, you know, on the on the cost of goods sold side and the manufacturing side, you know, we ourselves and with our partners in the space hopefully work with companies to sort of optimize the relationship with their, you know, usually it's their co-packer. Right. Every now and then they're self-manufacturing, but often it's optimizing the relationship with their co-packer, making sure that, you know, they have a good agreement in place that they have a contract that protects them. (laughs) Right. Um, That, you know, that's where Jordan's like legal eagle comes in. That's awesome. Because you see companies where, you know, their contract basically says that when they someday sell their business, you know, they may not be able to continue 
to manufacture a right. Deco Packer, right? And yeah. so what is, what's someone buying then right. if they can't even manufacture the product? I know. There's so many things that we don't know that we don't know, you know? I mean, I guess which leads me to sort of my last question. I think if you don't mind, maybe you'll come back on in the spring and we'll do like part de. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. I'd love okay. Because I feel like there's there's a lot of questions. But basically... I think I'd like to sort of leave with like any of the mistakes that someone like me can avoid um, before I get to someone like you to invest. So from our perspective, we are used to the cleanup. We're used to the mess. And I think that's why, honestly, we're a little bit unique in where we play. Um, So, you know, we talked about one mistake. It's overemphasizing doors versus velocity. Um, I would say the one mistake that's hard for us to overlook and it's more of a mindset than a mistake Mm -hmm. for us it's really important that founders prioritize food safety oh that's a great one yeah and so it's not you know there's going to be learnings along the way and big companies have recalls and you know we understand that things aren't always perfect but that has to be the number one focus the health and safety of your consumers yep if you're not wired to prioritize that as the most important thing in Mm -hmm. anything you do, then for us, that's something that we're never going to get comfortable with. That's such a good, I mean, fortunately I'm like a neurotic Jewish mother. So ditto. (laughs) So I'm like, that's why we're like that. Exactly. Hysterical (laughs) basically every time someone eats in my facility. (laughs) But, um, yes, I think that's, I think there are a lot of people who seem super casual about this whole thing and it is not casual. Um, Okay. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for answering a bunch of my questions. I feel like it might be nice to have you come like every six months or so as I'm in a different phase. That'd be a lot of fun. And stage. (laughs) Um, And I I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Matt, I want to thank you for being a great engineer and for a great season. And um, I'll be back on in January. And also, people, if you're listening, um, Heritage Radio really is this awesome um, nonprofit radio network dedicated to food. So um, please do try to make a end of year donation so that programs like this can keep on playing. Go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Um, and you can get all sorts of fun swag, I think. <laughs> All right. Uh, see you in January. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.